This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. Today is a great day to study the Bible. As you listen to today's message, I pray that you're blessed as we study God's Word together. I also want to begin today by thanking Dan for speaking last week about the healing of the man outside the gate called Beautiful. As we discussed what it means to be a community of restoration, we serve a God who is at work making all things new. Amen? Amen. And this amazing occurrence, this healing of a man that is unable to walk, has provided an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. And, and what I love about the story is that Peter doesn't back down from the opportunity, right? He, he immediately jumps in. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Peter, Peter saw this and he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does it surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? He doesn't hold back for a second. He sees the man well. He sees the people respond and immediately says, I have to save something. We didn't do this by our own power. Instead, I want to tell you who did this. But at first glance, he may want to work on his sales pitch. Because he takes hold of this opportunity and then he starts in in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. Okay, great start. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about Jesus. This is awesome. That's exactly how God does things. Perfect. And then we get to the tough part. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. He is not pulling his punches, one might say. You murdered him and you set free a murderer. And before we can even say, ah, settle down, he hits them with, you killed the author of life. Now, I'll tell you this, at other times in the proclamation of the gospel, it'll be mentioned about Jesus' death on the cross that it held some sort of transactional purpose where our, our sins were paid for. Or it holds some purpose where, where we're set free and liberated. But I'll be honest with you, in this sermon... Peter seems more intent on pointing out that the death of Jesus is the result of simple human perversity and wickedness. God tried, and you murdered him. The cross in this sermon is a scandalous sign of the rejection of God's anointed one by those he came to save. It is a tragic no spoken by humanity to the grace and hope on offer from God. And then we hear the gospel. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. Amen? That God says yes in spite of our no. And, and, and as it turns out, God's word is better than our word. Amen? Amen? And so his yes is stronger than our no. Because we're sinful, 
You need to know that. But we're not half as bad as God is good. And so God's yes is stronger than our no. So it says in verse 16, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can see. He raised Jesus even though we did our worst, death. God can still do what he's always done, life and resurrection. And to be a follower of Jesus is to witness to the restoration of life in the face of death. And in spite of ourselves, we're not without hope. Look at verses 17 and following. Uh, Fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. That's generous. (laughs) Maybe his PR is spot on. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then. Turn to God so that your sins can be wiped out, that times of refreshing can come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Did you catch that? Until the time comes for God to restore everything. You may have all things. How many things are all things? That's all of them. Even my no? God's word is better than our word. And the good news is better than the bad news. All that's left for us to do, apparently, is repent. To change our behavior. To stop working to bring about death. And there's a lot of death at work in this world. And instead, to start working to bring about life. Because we are bearing witnesses to God's restoration of all things. We're a community of restoration, as Dan said so ably. And when we do that, we show the world a community that has a different measure of value than the rest of the world. A community with values rooted in resurrection will be so radical that the world will perceive it as a threat to its very foundation. I want to talk a little bit about being a community of value today and a community with different values than we see in the world. And as we do that, what I'm going to ask for you to do is I'm going to read a text, but to do that, the text we're going to meditate on today, I want to ask you to stand in honor and reverence to the Word of God and hear the Word of the Lord from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verses 32 and reading through verse 35. The Bible says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need.
Heavenly Father, it's texts like this that give us pause because we want to be your people and we want to be the people that you have called us to be. We want to be the church that you intend for us to be. We want to be a community with a different set of values. We want to be a community that's rooted in your values, but we read texts like this and it's, it's hard because our values are so skewed by the world that we live in. God, I ask today that as we study your word, you would speak loudly and powerfully, that your word would be better than the word around us from the world, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would make us uncomfortable where we need to be discomforted. That you would speak, Father, for your children are listening. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as Dan talked about, in Acts 3, there's this healing of this guy, and there's a sermon that follows. And I've talked about the sermon. Well, it doesn't take very long for those who are in charge, for the authorities in the area to catch wind of what's happening and to respond pretty strongly. They swing into action to protect the interests of the establishment. So in chapter 4 and verse 1 it says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Okay, so immediately they're going to go and they're going to arrest Peter and John. And they arrest Peter and John for, uh, well... The law, they had, um, well, look, we got to do something about them because 5,000 people have been converted and now on our doorstep. And so this Jesus movement thing is getting out of hand. And so we've got to do something. Let's just lock them up for the night and let them think about it. And I love the way that Luke presents this showdown, it's full of drama. This is a let's get ready to rumble moment. And here in the west corner, the reigning champions, the religious elite, the highly educated rulers, scribes, and chief elders, including those of the high priest's family. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other of the high priest's family. Oh, that's a strong champion. And in the east corner, we have two uneducated fishermen. (laughs) Peter and John were brought before them. And they asked them the question that the establishment always asks. Who gave you the authority to do this? 
You see, rulers generally assume that they control the instruments and symbols of authority and power. And they are shocked when power appears to be emanating from those so lowly as Peter and John. And I love the irony of Peter's opening statement in his response. Verse 9, let's see if you catch it. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 8. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are asked how he was healed. Did you catch it? So here we are in court on trial because obviously we've done this really illegal thing, which was be kind and heal someone who couldn't walk. I can see why you're upset. I get why you have so many questions. Let me, let me speak to that because you want an answer for how we were so kind and helped people. So let me go ahead and answer. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Once again, Peter comes out swinging. It's by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become now the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The radical truth that he's saying not only threatens to topple institutions, but it can turn the world upside down. And as Peter explains that the power that restored this man's ability to walk is also able to restore their dead and sinful hearts as well. They begin to worry. And Peter goes on to say, as a matter of fact, he's really the only hope we have of restoring all of this. There's no other name that we could put any kind of hope in for this mess that we're in. The authorities are at a loss here. You see, when they see, verse 13, the courage of Peter and John and realize that they were unschooled ordinary men, I guess he had bad grammar, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since, I love the way this is written, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, see that's a shock because he couldn't stand. Okay, it's not just that he's present, he's present and on his feet. And so as much as we want to say, you guys are misleading people, they've got this problem in the room. There's an elephant in the room, and it's this guy who's standing there. Obviously, God has done something through them. And they're at a loss because regardless of how subversive the message about Jesus may be, the point is, the only thing they've done is heal someone who couldn't walk. So, they do what the authorities always do when they're faced with a challenge. 
they attempt to control the flow of information. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. That's a little bit overblown, but probably true. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We're going to control the flow of information so that they don't talk about it anymore. Verse 19, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you? Or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You see, unfortunately, for the rulers, here's how this works, Simone. Unfortunately for the rulers, trying to silence A spirit-filled disciple is like trying to hold back a breaking wave. You're not going to have a lot of success at that. You see, this new community of Christ values the approval of God more than it values the approval of men. This new community values the approval of God more than it values the approval of men. And so, so you, you can say what you want and tell us what you want us to do, but we know what God has done in our life. We have tasted the Spirit, and if the Spirit's in me, I can't be silent. He's placed in me a fire that even if I try to lock it down, it's going to burn itself up from the inside, and I have to say His name. That even if, even if I tried to be silent, these rocks around you will start crying out because the Spirit of God is strong enough to do that. And so you're trying to have me quiet down. Notice they're not trying to stir up trouble. Verse 20, we can't help speaking what we've seen and heard. They're not trying to stir up trouble, they're just trying to bear faithful witness. We can't not say something. After a few more threats, they let him go. And on their release, verse 23, this is, this is awesome. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Yes. That's the right response. They get hauled in before the authorities and they raise their voices in prayer. I can tell you what my prayer would be about. If I were hauled in before the authorities and they were in this, what could have been a disastrous occurrence, I know what my prayer would be. Sovereign Lord, we need your protection. 
We need you to keep us safe from these folks that are out to get us. And that's what they pray, right? Absolutely not. Look at what they choose to pray. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You're the God of life. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant. That was interesting they included the people of Israel. Did you catch that? Because when it says, why do the nations rage, that's normally, nations is usually a reference to Gentiles, those who are not Israel. They said, but then, and, and they start mentioning people, and it sounds like that's where they're going. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel from this city met to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That is not protect me. Consider their threats and then give me the power to speak with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they, were, they spoke the word of God boldly. They pray for boldness. They ask for the power to speak the word of gospel with boldness. This new community of Christ values faithful witness over personal safety. We've already seen that the new community of Christ values the approval of God over the approval of men. Now we see that this new community of Christ values faithful witness over personal safety. They're convinced that it is God's business to heal and work signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And it is the community's business to speak the word with boldness in the midst of the mighty acts of God. So once again, the Spirit arrives in power, assuring the disciples that their prayer has been heard and answered in the affirmative, that God will be moving and working as they bear faithful witness. You see, there is in this section of Scripture an amazing connection between witness and worship. And it's been there the whole book. They gather together to pray. The Spirit shows up and immediately drives them out to speak the, the Sermon of Pentecost. They baptized 3,000. Then they're going to the temple to worship, and the Spirit drives them to see this man that can't walk. And they heal him. And then they give witness to how God has done this in Jesus, because the God of restoration changes everything. That if resurrection is true, then death can do its worst. And our God is greater. And then they go and they have to appear and they go to trial. They get accused of some things and falsely. And they get, they get told not to talk by the authorities. And then they go back and they pray. Do you see how there's this, there's this move between witness and worship where they feed each other? 
And it's with this rhythm that the church discovers the source of its life. And with this kind of God response to a prayer for boldness, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see what happens next. If you're hearing the story, you see this moment and you're like, oh man, this is about to be crazy and awesome and crazy awesome. Like this is going to be great. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any of their possessions that was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay. Well, that was underwhelming. That was not the place for kind of a nice little summary and a discussion of giving. I would have liked to see more healings. More confrontation with the powers that be. More awesome miracles. The big stuff that catches people's eyes and imagination. Stuff that blows people's minds. Okay, time out. Or as the young children today say, pause. That's a telling thing. For this next part of the sermon, I'm going to need you all to be completely honest with yourselves. Okay? And, and, and I need you to know, none of us can look into your heart and see the truth that's deep down there. So I need you to be really honest with yourself. Okay, time in. We want the big stuff that's really going to reach people. And you gave us this. I want you to think about how you feel about your material possessions. Your money, your home, your cars, your property, your clothes, your things. Now imagine giving all of that up. You don't need to raise a hand or say anything. I just want you to reflect honestly to yourself about this passage. And then hear me when I ask, is it possible that this story is in fact the big stuff? The crazy stuff. 
What if the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or even a well-orchestrated Easter Sunday service, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. This new community of Christ values restoration over private possessions. Now I can tell you this, Luke was not a Marxist. Luke had no clue who Karl Marx was. But I think that Luke is enough of a realist to know that where our possessions are, where our possessions are is where our hearts are also. And a surprisingly large amount of the book of Acts deals with the economic issues facing this community. Of course, it's written by Luke, and Luke talks about money a lot in his gospel. Consider these parables. The parable of the debtors in Luke 7, 41 to 43. The good Samaritan in chapter 10, verses 29 to 37. The rich fool in 12, 16 to 21. The unjust steward in 16, 1 through 8. The rich man in Lazarus in 16, 19 through 31. The parable of the pounds in 19, 11 through 27. By the way, all of those but one are unique to Luke. It seems like he's making this a point. You see, for Luke, money is not often spoken of as a divine blessing. Or a sign of approval, rather he treats it most often as a threat, a danger. The rich young ruler could not part with his money, 1823. Another rich man is declared a fool because of his reliance on his well-filled barns in chapter 12, 15 to 21. And this makes us uncomfortable Because our society understands wealth as a means of enduring significance in the face of death. It's a tool of legacy building. I can't take it with me, we say flippantly. Knowing full well that we can leave it to our children and it will provide them with ongoing generational power, privilege, and security, ensuring that our provision will outlast us. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said, Luke 18, 24. And the disciples respond for all of us just two verses later and say, then then who can be saved? The same wonder-working spirit that made the lame man walk in chapter 3 enables a man named Barnabas to sell his field and give the proceeds to the apostles who then distribute it to those with needs. The power which broke the bonds of, of death on Easter. The power that shattered the divisions of speech at Pentecost. The power that empowered the one who was lame to walk now releases the tight grip of private property. Unless we think this is a small matter, or that I'm making too much of this, consider the next chapter. We're in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Ananias and Sapphira. 
provide us with a chilling story. Their possessions and what they do to us is a matter of life and death. Martin Luther once surmised that security was the ultimate idol. And we've shown time and again that we are willing to exchange anything for a taste of security. Our family, our health, our church, the truth. The ethical stance of these early Christians, their beliefs about matters like money, they they are concrete applications of their theological assertions. That what they say they believe is what they try and live. Imagine a community that crazy. The church was called to be an alternative community, a sign, a signal to the world that Christ has made possible a way of life together unlike anything else the world has ever seen. Not to confront lies and deceit and greed and self-service among people like Ananias and Sapphira would be the death of the church. Could this be why in ending the stark account of Ananias and Sapphira, Luke uses the word church for the very first time in his gospel? Oh, really? That here, in struggling with money, the community first experienced itself as the disciplined community of truthfulness. Jalen, Ashley, and Nate, why don't y'all come up? And I want to invite the prayer team also to come up. The church is a community of value. And we have a set of values that makes no sense to this world. We value God's approval more than human approval. Amen? Amen. We value faithful witness over personal safety. Amen? We value restoration over private possessions. Amen? Amen. Unless, of course, we don't. In which case, we have two options. We can repent, or we can stop calling ourselves the church. I, for one, vote that we choose to repent of our selfishness and of our self-reliance and choose to live more like the community that God has called us to be, that we speak of the church turning the world upside down, but perhaps today we must first allow God to turn our worlds upside down. And it may hurt. C.S. Lewis once said, about Jesus saying it's, it's harder for a rich man, or it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. C.S. Lewis once said, but with God all things are possible. It's, it's going to be hell on the camel, but he can do it. <laughs> it may hurt, but God will carry us through. He loves us. And he knows what's best for us. Amen. Amen. Let's come to him.
while we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to the Rochester Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Our hope is that it was a blessing to you. If you would like someone to study with or pray with, do not hesitate to reach out to us through our website, rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.